Let's pray. Lord, we just sang about the wonders of your love for us. And we can sing that song glibly with kind of a happy, slappy kind of attitude and, and not really ponder the truth of it. Your love for sinners is marvelous. It's wonderful beyond description. Even at our best waking hours, even when our cognitive ability is at its height, we cannot fully understand the glory and the wonder of your love. Your love, first of all, for your son, an infinite love that spills over into action for our sake, sacrificial action for our sake. And that, in turn, reflects back to the glory of God. So help us, Father, not to be glib, not to be shallow in our thinking as we enter this Christmas season, but help us, Father, to think deeply about the glory of this, this Savior and his Father and his Spirit. We need your help for that, Lord, because we're so easily swayed by the lights and the music and the gifts and the food and the laughter, all good things. But, oh, Father, may they drive us to you and not away from you. And so, Father, we give you praise. Help, help me now, Father, to preach your word. Protect us from error. Fill us with your truth and a deep love for our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. These things we pray in his name. Amen. Well, it's that time of year again. I'm not quoting from the song. It's just a reality. It is this time of year when Christians all over the world celebrate the incarnation of the Son of God. That is, we celebrate the fact that God took on flesh. That God became a man. And that's what the incarnation is about. Right now, millions, right now, of, millions people. of people around the globe look forward to this celebration. That's coming up uh, for most of us Westerners on the 25th and for, for some on the 7th of January in the Russian-speaking countries. Millions of people around the world would call themselves Christians. And, and practically speaking, this time of year is a time for families, families to, take to take long trips to reunite with their relatives. I know that's the case in our house. We'll have our six grandkids and... And our two sons and their brides are making the long trip from Kalispell, and, and it's wonderful. It's a time for singing and feasting and, and sharing the common grace of life together. It's a time of thankfulness. It's a time of giving and generosity. And of course, these are all good things, and, and we have been granted the freedom to enjoy them. The Word of God tells us to enjoy them. Nevertheless... Christians who hold the 
the doctrines of grace understand that something infinitely greater is going on behind the scenes and behind the characters of the Christmas narrative. Something big is happening. And we understand from the Bible that in eternity past, before God created light, before God created angels or earth, God was already on mission. If we had time this morning to examine John 17 or Hebrews 13, we would discover afresh that before he created everything out of nothing, God the Father made an eternal covenant with God the Son. Because of his infinite love toward the Son, S-O-N, toward his Son, because of his infinite love, the Father determined to give his Son a redeemed people who would worship and adore him forever to the praise of his glory. And when we meditate on such truth, we realize afresh that we will never fully understand or enjoy the biblical Christmas narrative the way God intends us to to, to, to enjoy it, until we realize that ultimately the Christmas narrative is not about us. It's about Jesus. It's about the Holy Spirit. It's about God the Father. The picture of a babe in the manger is the first earthly scene in God's drama to glorify his son. And... It is the first movement in this play that is moving toward the Son glorifying the Father. I reference again John 17 that we don't have... Listen, this is my third... In the past week, I, I, have, I have worked on and ejected three sermons and landed on this. And you can probably guess where I was. I was in John 17 for two of those, and I was in Hebrews 13 for one of them, and finally landed here. This is the very ground and foundation of our joy at Christmas. Because you see, if the Father had not set out from the beginning to glorify the Son and giving him a redeemed people, if that had not happened before God said, let there be light, there would be no hope for you and me. Praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word and you can be seated. Well, the focus of this text finds its center on the good news. The good news. This is all about the shepherds and the angels and the glory of God. First, it's, it's good news in heaven. We see that in verse 14. The angels declare glory to God in the highest. So this glory that he's talking about is above. It is, it is in the heavens. In other words, the announcement of the birth of Jesus was good news in heaven among the angels. The angels both announced it and rejoiced over it. Second, this is good news for earthlings. This is good for us who are not yet in heaven. 
the angels declare not only glory to God in the highest, but on earth, on earth, peace among men. And so the safe and successful arrival of the Son of God into the world through Mary as a baby brought joy in heaven and brought joy on earth. Now I point this out simply to draw attention to the fact that in the main, whatever brings joy to the heart of God is designed also to bring joy to his people. Whatever delights God should delight us. That which brings glory to God usually brings glory to his people. Joy to his people. And so this text is about divine good news. This is what Christmas is about. It is good news, if I can just lay out the outline here, verses 8 through 10. This is good news is prophesied. Verse 11, it's personified. Verse 12, it's verified. Verse 13 and 14, it is glorified. And verse fi verses 15 and 20, it is multiplied. Now, that's a lot to get through. I'll just tell you, we're going to spend a lot of time on number one, and we're going to cruise through the others. So let's begin at the top. In verses 8 through 10, the good news is prophesied by a mighty angel of the Lord. The good news is prophesied. Now, I think for the most part, it strikes us as rather odd when we read that God who established the eternal covenant with his son would choose to announce the implementation of that plan, the revelation of that plan in the form of a baby, that he would take this eternal covenant manifest on earth and announce it to shepherds? To shepherds? I mean, why not? Why not the whole world? Why not at least the world leaders? Why not kings? Why not the religious vanguard in Jerusalem? I mean, why not even perhaps the priests, or at least the high priest, in God's own temple? Why to a lowly group of unnamed, no-account, peasant shepherds? If it wasn't for the fact that he, they told other people about it, they, nobody may have known. I mean, sometimes it's baffling, is it? What, what God does, what is going through his mind? This is not the way we would do it, Lord. It provokes one to wonder, when the Lord ordered the angels to announce this event, the angel who was in charge of writing down the coordinates wrote down the wrong address. I mean, you know what it's like when you're following your GPS and you find yourself out in the middle of a field? It's what this looks like. Why did God herald the greatest announcement in human history to an insignificant group of poor shepherds in a desolate grazing field in the middle of the night? Cloaked in darkness, at least at the beginning. Surely there was a more appropriate venue for this. This making of an earth-shattering, history-altering announcement in the dark people who are not even noticed. 
Well, if you struggle with that intellectually, let me remind you of the first question we use around here when we are reading the Bible and thinking about what it means and how it should be applied. And the first question that we ask, class, is what? What does this say about? Say it louder. What does this say about? What does it say about God? What does this text tell us about God? That should be your first question. Not, what does this mean to me? Forget about what it means to you. What did it mean to him first? And then later, let's talk about what it means for me. Because you're going to get what it means to you wrong if you don't understand what it means to God. What does it mean when the text tells us these things? Remember, the narrative is not about the shepherds. It's not, it's not uh, about the wise men. It's not about the, the three gifts. It's not about Herod. It's not about the star. The whole point of making the announcement to shepherds rather than kings was to affirm the reality about the character and purposes of God especially in his plan of redemption. You see, God is no respecter of persons. Let me just make that easier to understand. God looks at humanity, and he is not impressed. He's not impressed by pomp and position and achievement. In fact, James says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to who? and the humble. In the Old Testament book of Isaiah, God himself says this, this is the one that I esteem. This is the one who impresses me. He who is humble and contrite in heart and who trembles at my word. God is not like our governmental leaders whose Power and authority is dependent upon whether or not they can impress and befriend other powerful people. God is omnipotent all by himself and in himself. He needed nothing before he said, let there be light. He needed no one. He, the three persons of the Trinity, were perfectly satisfied. They did not, he did not create us because he was lonely. He was the all-sufficient, completely satisfied God. He does as he pleases with the power of heaven and the people of earth, and no one can hold back his hand or say to him, what have you done? You remember who said that? I've asked that question many times here. It's Nebuchadnezzar, after eating grass for seven years because of his pride. He does as he pleases with the powers of heaven and the people of earth, and no one can hold back his hand. His purpose is to make his glory among the nations magnificent. He is setting his glory on display by taking the poor, the downtrodden, the outcast, the lame, the deaf, the blind, and exalting them as trophies of his grace. Telling you this is all about the glory of God. It's all about the glory of God. This is the glory of God gone public. He's always been glorious. There was just never anybody around to, to enjoy it. 
Yes, the proud and the wealthy may feel good about the positions of honor that they have attained for themselves, but in the end, it will be shown that God has not called himself to very many of the wise or very many of the noble. Rather, he, as Paul writes, says, God has chosen the what? The foolish things of the world to shame the wise, and God has chosen the what? The weak things of the world to shame the things that are strong and the base things of the world and the despised. He's talking about people. He's talking about you. He's definitely talking about me. He's chosen the despised, the things that are not, that he might nullify the things that are, so that, here we're back to this again, so that no man may boast before God. That just as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. Let him who glories, glory in the Lord. The Christmas story is all about God. It's all about, the God, about God. This God who has revealed himself in the Bible, he is the good news. He is the good news that we sinners can be at peace with God who deserve punishment. The wages of sin is death. It's magnificent. And so let him who boasts boast in the Lord. We could pause here and, and ask, what is your ambition? What gets you up in the morning? What drives you? Are you driven to make a name for yourself? Why do you use Facebook? Why do you use Twitter? Why do you write blogs? Why do you sing? Why do you preach? Why do you do what you do? Why do you work? Are you driven to make a name for yourself? Are you driven to win respect and honor of other people? Does your spirit live and die upon whether or not you get approval from others? Oh, beloved, be very, very careful lest in the end you find at the same time the approval of men and the displeasure of God. May our highest ambition simply consist of being found by God faithful servants who delight to do his will, just as the Father looked at the Son and found him to be a faithful servant of the Father who delights to do his will. Perhaps the most clarifying answer to why God announced the incarnation of his son to a group of shepherds is brought to light a few chapters later. Because a few chapters later, we find Jesus, now the adult. We're only going to spend a little bit of time on that, and we'll come back to Jesus the baby. But do you remember when, near the beginning of his ministry in Israel, Jesus went to the synagogue one of the first times, and he read a portion from Isaiah, Isaiah 61, to be exact, and verse 1, to be more exact. Listen carefully to this passage that Jesus chose to read to the Jews in the synagogue. He said this. He reads this. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to preach the good news to the poor, to proclaim release to the captives, and recovery of sight to the blind, 
to set free the downtrodden, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. The favorable year of the Lord may very well have been the year of Jubilee, when all captives were to be set free. You see, the Lord has not come for the proud, but for the lowly, for the, are, are you listening? Listen to this word. He has come for the lowly and he's come for the unrighteous. He has come for those who are sick. That's why he can say at the beginning of the, of the Beatitudes, blessed are the poor in spirit. That, that is, blessed are those who are spiritually bankrupt. They view themselves as spiritually bankrupt. When they think of talking to God, the only thing they think of is, Lord, I have nothing to offer you but my sin. It is to that kind of person. It is to that kind of person that the gospel has power. It doesn't work for anybody else. And so it is perfectly consistent with God's character and plan that upon Christ's arrival into the world, God God would make the official announcement to those who have always been the special objects of his grace, the poor, the disrespected, the downtrodden, the weak, the nobodies of the world who are pictured perfectly in this small group of lowly shepherds out in the dark, outside the city, where no one can even see them. It was exclusively to them that God announced the most wonderful news humanity has ever heard. So just outside of Bethlehem, in a place where shepherds were watching over their flocks by night, an angel of the Lord suddenly stepped out of eternity into time with an explosion of terrifying light. I word it that way, Because it must have been like that. The first thing the angel says is, it's like, boom, don't be afraid. Are you kidding me? I'm already afraid. (laughs) And there they are. Here they are, the shepherds, watching over their flocks. An angel appears, tells them not to be afraid. You ever wonder... When, when he talks about the light shining here, what was the light? What was this blazing light? It wasn't the angel. Here's the phrase that's used in the text. The glory of the Lord shone in front of them, above them, no, all around them. You know what that means? It's coming from everywhere. It's light, which seemed to be coming from everywhere. And what is this light? You want to know what the light is? I think it was the very Shekinah glory of God. It was the glory of God. The very glory of the Lord himself appeared. It may not be immediately evident, but the glory of the Lord is a technical term signifying the very presence of God in blazing visible form. It was the same glory that made the bush on 
on Horeb, on Sinai, burn without being consumed. It wasn't fire, it was God. It was the glory that led the children of Israel out of Egypt, through the wilderness, at night, by a pillar of fire. Only it wasn't fire, it was God. It was the same glory that came and settled on the Holy of Holies in the tabernacle that eventually became the temple. It was a fire that, that was a blaze in the tabernacle and then in the temple. It was the glory of God. And I believe it was that very glory that burned like, burned like a star in the heavens, drawing the Magi westward to Bethlehem, where it finally hovered over a single house. Stars don't do that. I think it was the blazing glory, the Shekinah glory of God hovering over the house of Mary and Joseph and the toddling Savior. We can hardly imagine the fear that must have in immediately overwhelmed these poor unsuspecting shepherds as they realized God himself had just visited them. But this was no time for fear. This was not an occasion of divine wrath. This was not time for judgment, although sometimes God would appear that way for judgment. And it's why the angel had to say, fear not. It isn't coming in judgment. The angel cries out, do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good news, good news of great joy, which will be for all the people. Do not be afraid may be more significant than it first appears on many occasions in Scripture. Sinful people were told to fear God's presence because of their sin. But these men out in that lonely pasture that night are told not to be afraid. Perhaps these shepherds lived above their reputation. Perhaps they, like Zacharias in Luke 1.13 and Mary in Luke 1 verse 30, who were also told by the angel not to be afraid, perhaps Perhaps they were men who faithfully looked forward to the day that Messiah would come. And perhaps that explains why they were so quick to tell everyone who was listening to them about the things that they had heard. They were longing for the advent of Messiah. In any case, whenever God comes to announce the good news of grace, there is no need to be afraid. And that was exactly God's purpose here, to announce that the gospel, the good news, had appeared in human form right there in Bethlehem. In fact, the verb here for I bring you good tidings is euangelizo, from which we get our word evangelize, or sometimes translated uh, gospel. And when you think about it, that's all evangelism is. Really. It's announcing the good news that God forgives 
the sins of all people who will humble themselves and believe. The term great joy here literally means laughter or hilarity. The goal of the gospel is, is not to make people somber and, and morose. He doesn't want us to be stiff religionists. It is meant to fill them with inexorable joy. And that's why the Apostle Paul commands, rejoice in the Lord. When? Always. In case we missed it. And again I say, what? Rejoice. Do you realize who you are? Do you realize what God has done for you? In the process of magnifying the glory of his son, you get salvation. You get peace with God. God is greatly glorified in us when our emotions and desires are affected by the good news of, our, of, our of what our intellect embraces. You know, the Bible is full of propositional truth. But it shouldn't make us stoic. It should make us joyful. Joyful worship. Imagine, can you imagine how the shepherds presented this to Mary when they went running up either to the house or to the cave or to the barn or whatever it was, depending on who you read. Can you imagine? You think they walked up and said, um, Mary, um, something happened. I'm not, not sure you're ready to hear this. And nobody's going to believe it. We're not even sure how to describe it. I don't think that's the way it happened. I think they ran into the building yelling and screaming and laughing and clapping and cheering and singing. I think they got loud. I mean, they just saw what no one else has seen, angels. I mean, Zechariah recently saw one, but that just was a manifestation that God was on the move. God was doing something. He was on mission, and things were happening. And so Jesus says in John 15, 11, These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be what? Full. This joy-producing good news is not just for Israel, but notice he says, for all the people. All the people. This is a missionary call. This joy, the source of this joy, is a missionary call to the people. Perhaps we could say to the peoples. In the Old Testament, God made it very clear that the light would come to the Gentiles. It's not just for the Jews. It was to the Jew first. But it was also, as Paul will tell us, to the Greek, to the barbarian. You know who the barbarians are? Anybody who's not Greek and not Jew. That'd be us. Barbarian. Morning, barbarian. Arr, morning. <laughs> to proclaim to the nations the good news of Jesus for the joy of all peoples. 
Remember the sign out here? Remember our, our purpose statement for this church? We exist, say it with me, we exist to proclaim the excellencies of Christ in all things to the glory of God in the joy of all peoples. Why do we say that? It's because of this. It is the revelation of God he tells us. Listen, we don't know how to do Christianity until God tells us how. And he has told us. And so this joy is for all the people. This good news is for all the people. And so the prophetic message is that God is announcing good news of great joy for all the people. Namely, that is his eternal promise to his son and to sinners is being fulfilled. And in a sense, has been fulfilled. But this good news is not just a message. It is, in fact, as I said earlier, this good news is a person. And so we've seen the good news prophesied, proclaimed by the angels. Secondly, the good news is personified. Look at verse 11. For unto you... Unto you, shepherds. Unto you. Isn't that interesting? He doesn't say unto Mary. Unto you this day. In the city of David. A Savior who is Christ the Lord. For unto you is born this day a a Savior who is Christ the Lord. The word Christ here is an awfully exalted title for a baby. The Barlows just had a baby. I don't know if they thought of maybe naming him Christ, but that would have been so exalted. It would be arrogant. But here the baby is called Christ. Christ, and not only Christ, but the Lord. A baby, like the shepherds, are invisible to the surrounding culture. A baby who is born to an unknown teenage parent in, of all places, a stable. There was nothing about Jesus' outward appearance or situation that would have indicated that he was anything special. In fact, people had pity on them, and, and not enough pity. There was no room in the place they had planned to stay. To the contrary, By all appearances, he was just another nobody born into a family of nobodies, and nobody really cared. The term Christ literally means anointed one. You know what that's a reference to? The king. It's the king. That's why the Magi came. They saw the star, and somehow they concluded they must have known the Old Testament. And one day the king would be born. And they connected that to the star. And they were right. I don't even understand all that. But God brought them. Christ is synonymous with the term Messiah. This is your Messiah. He is the one whom God had anointed to be the eternal prophet, priest, and king of all who believe. And we need all three. We need a prophet. We need someone who can tell us the very words of God. We need a priest 
We need someone who can mediate between God and holy God and sinful man. And we need a king who can tell us what is right and what is wrong for our good and for his glory. He would be the savior of every sinner who humbles himself and admits that his only hope is that God will be gracious to him for Jesus' sake, for the glory of Christ. He is the one whom all Israel had anticipated for centuries. And tonight, he's been born in the same city where the great other king, previous king, David, had been born. The little village of Bethlehem. But it wasn't enough for the angel to announce the good news and claim that it had come in the form of a person. The angel authenticates this testimony with irrefutable proof. First, the good news is prophesied, then it's personified, and now we see the good news is verified. I mean, they've already seen the angels that, you know, nobody had to tell the shepherds what was going on because the angels already did. But look at verse 12. And here's, the, here's part of the message of the angels. And this will be a sign for you. In other words, this is proof. You want proof? We are going to give you proof. Here's what you need to do. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger? A manger. Unusual? Highly. Listen, just go around, ask people, has a baby been born? And, uh, and, and you know, knock on every door if you have to. But you will know the right baby when you get there. Because he will be swallowed, swaddled in swaddling clothes. You know, what's interesting about that is uh, uh, women would wear, I don't know if men did this at the time or not, they would wear this cloth around them. In case they died, they would have something to be buried in. And you get the, the thought that maybe she took that, that wrapping off and just swaddled him tightly and very carefully set him in a in a feeding trough. When you find the baby in the feeding trough, that's the one the angels are proclaiming. Wasn't hard to find. Small town. How many babies were born that night? Not many. Maybe one. It wouldn't be hard for the shepherds to check the veracity of the angels' claim. All they needed to do was go into town. He would look just like any other baby. But let there be no mistake. He's the king. He is the king of kings and lord of lords. And if the king of kings and lord of lords were to be born as a human baby, then you would expect angels to announce it, and they did. He will be called... Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. And by the way, that's not peace militarily, that's peace with God. Listen, there is a God. He created you, therefore you are accountable to him. This baby would grow to be a real man and would experience everything a normal man would experience. But though he was a man, he was also God. Jesus is the God-man. 
who is the man who is God. As God, he would have the capacity to heal the sick and give sight to the blind and even raise the dead. He was the king of kings under whom even the demons would have to submit and did merely by his presence. He would come as the consolation of Israel, as her comfort, as her salvation, their savior, their Messiah, their king, who would one day sit on David's throne, ruling over all things until he makes his enemies a footstool for his feet. But for now, on this very special night, He was just a baby, wrapped in clean cloths before his young mother, Mary, and an unexpected intruding group of shepherds. And you know what? When they came in announcing what they had heard, Mary didn't have any doubt. She didn't expect this, no doubt. I mean, that part's not prophesied. When they told her what had just happened, she treasured those things in her heart, the text says. Mary and Joseph knew the identity of this child. They knew he was the good news personified. When they arrived at the place where Jesus was born, that is the shepherds, the good news was verified. One of the wonderful things about God is that he doesn't merely require sinners to blindly believe as as pretty much every other religion does. Rather, he gives proof. He gives evidences that what he says is true. And this brings us to number four. The good news is glorified. Look at verses 13 and 14. And suddenly there was with the angel, so we're back out in the field again, There was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, glory to the baby, glory to Mary. No, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. Now, just when it appears that the scene is is bursting before the shepherds, that scene could not possibly become any more exciting. Suddenly the whole dark sky explodes into light as if a multitude of angels. He says a multitude of the heavenly host. Wait, you know, who, who were they? Cherubim? Seraphim? I don't know. Saints who have died before? I don't know. We don't know. We know there were angels. We don't know who all makes up the heavenly hosts. We have a little bit of a hint But notice what they said. Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among men with whom he is pleased. Now, we don't know how many angels appeared that night, but the word host, host means an army. Remember when Joshua uh, met the Lord and he was about ready to cross the Jordan and conquer Jericho and he's kind of surveying things from the other side of the river And someone appears to him with a sword in his hand, and he says, are you with us or against us? And he said, neither. I am am the Lord of hosts. 
Lord of hosts means an, the captain of an army of angels. The captain of an army of angels. And I would submit to you, the captain is just born. And his army of angels is already standing by. It's magnificent, isn't it? The Greek word for multitude, so multitude of angels, right? It means 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands of thousands. <laughs> That's literally what it means. 10,000 times 10,000, I can't even say it, and thousands of thousands of angels. And we see this in Revelation 5.11 and 1 Kings 22.19. Here we see the ultimate goal of the gospel that has just been revealed by the angel of the Lord. The gospel's ultimate goal is to magnify the glory of God. It's to demonstrate his excellent and incalculable worth. You say, well, wait a minute, I thought it was about saving us. It is for the glory of God which will be magnified in our salvation, but our salvation is not ultimate, it is penultimate. The glory of the Father, the glory of Christ his Son, the glory of the Spirit. It is to demonstrate his excellent and incalculable worth. It is to bring about such a change in the hearts of God rejecting Christ belittling men that they find themselves exalting in the greatness and majesty of the God they have always rejected and said did not exist. By the way, that's what he did to Moses. Moses wasn't on the mountain because he was looking for a place to repent. He had just killed a man a couple, de couple decades earlier. And, and by the way, that's what he did to Saul of Tarsus on the road to Damascus. And, and that's what he does to everyone who will bow the knee before him and believe. You may say, I thought the purpose of the gospel was was to save me. The fruit of the gospel is to save you. The purpose of the gospel is to magnify the excellencies of Jesus. And Jesus delighted to do it, to glorify the Father. Sometime today, just read. Would you read? Would you promise me you'll read today John 17. This is true, but... The salvation of the lost is merely a means to a greater end. The reason sinful men are redeemed from their sin is that we might spend eternity worshiping and glorifying Jesus because of who he is and what he has done on our behalf. Through Christ Jesus, God has paid the ransom, has purchased peace between himself and all who will believe to the praise of his glorious grace. You know, some people, I think, are hesitant about the gospel because it, it just seems so selfish. It, it's just me, 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 me. Can I just tell you? It's not about you. It's about him. It's about God. And by the way, that reconciliation with God, that peace that the angels were referring to here is not peace to all men everywhere regardless of what they believe to be true about God. As long as they accept each other, 
that's not this peace. Rather, it is peace among men with whom God is pleased. Well, that narrows the field a little. And frankly, peace with God belongs only to those who believe the truth of the angel's message that Jesus is the proclaimed son, the proclaimed promised Christ, the savior of every sinner who will humble himself before God and admit he needs to be rescued from the curse of sin. In short, the angels were praising God for sending salvation down to earth in a person, in the person of Jesus Christ for all who would believe. The reality of the gospel on earth was at its beginning point. The son is born. And for 33 years, God is pushing forward with his plan all the way to the cross. That's why at the end of Jesus' ministry, he starts going to Jerusalem and he says, I must go there and I will be killed. Why? Why? It's the plan all along. It's the only way we could be saved. And it would be the most glorious thing to magnify who Jesus is. And then the good news is multiplied. Look at verses 15 and 20, and I'm mostly just going to read this. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem. And see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told to them concerning the child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. By the way, during this period of time, there was powerful messianic fervor in Israel. Things were happening. John the Baptist was also born. Remember the whole story with Zacharias in the temple and the angel appearing to him, and, and he went mute, probably deaf too. He was a priest, well-known. His aged wife, sure enough, bore a son, and the people were thinking, this must be the time of Messiah. This must be the time of Messiah. The Messiah must be coming. And usually when people say things like that, they're wrong. But somehow they were right this time. And they were so excited. And how did Mary respond? Mary heard these chattering shepherds trying to explain what they just experienced out in the field. And Luke says, Mary, Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. I think Luke knew that because his gospel was a research paper of sorts. He went around and interviewed all these people. Mary, how did you respond when the angels came? And she said something like, I didn't know what to say. I knew it was true. And I've been treasuring it in my heart ever since. And the shepherds returned. Here we go. 
Here's the multiplied. And the shepherds returned to what? To the field? To their homes? To their fellow, fellow shepherds? Glorifying and praising God for all that they had seen as it had been told them. You know when a shepherd comes home, walks in the door, honey, how was your day? It was bad. <laughs> Sorry, it just popped into my mind. <laughs> What's he going to say? I mean, well, we, we walked around, the sheep followed. We walked around, the sheep. I've been to Israel, seen the shepherds, right? They look like nice people, men and women. They walk around. They eat grass. I mean, honey, what do you think? I mean, it was, it, was, it was another boring day. Not on this day. You gotta know, they about broke the door down when they got home. Honey, you will never believe it. In fact, I'm pretty sure you're not gonna believe it until the other shepherds come over here and we will all tell you what we saw and heard. The Messiah has come. The Messiah has come. The Messiah has come. And his angels appear to us. And she's like, right. And it was true. The application is obvious, isn't it? The role of the shepherds is to relate the message of the good news, the gospel, to everyone they know. And everywhere they go, they were to go into their little world praising God about what they had seen and heard and believed. For us today, sharing the gospel is the natural result of seeing the glory, the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And if you are not a Christian today, I hope you better understand what Christianity is all about. And if you think, uh, if you think a lot of the gaudiness is just too much, yeah, I do too. But you know what? Behind all of the lights and the tinsel and the presence, there's truth there. It's truth there. And the gospel gets buried under all of that stuff. But don't let it be buried outside of your heart today. Open your heart. He came for you. He has borne all of your guilt and all of your sin. You owed God a penalty you could never pay, and Jesus paid it for you. He was perfectly satisfied on his throne in heaven, but because of his great love for you, who became a child, who became a man, who became the sacrifice that you needed to have all of your sin forgiven. Wouldn't you trust him? Won't you trust him today? Won't you let him change your life today? All you have to do is say to him something like, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. 
For God, I have nothing to offer you but my sin. Do you accept me? He is the king, by the way. It's not about you accepting him. It's about him accepting you. Will you accept me? I have got nothing. You're the only kind of person the gospel works for. You're the only kind of person God saves. Let that be for you today. Let it be today. Christmas offers good news, great joy, and eternal peace to every humble soul who knows beyond a doubt that he or she needs a savior. Let's pray. Oh, Father, you have revealed these things to us and while we are unworthy of them, you have given them for our joy and our delight and our purity, our cleansing, our reconciliation with God. Oh, Father, I pray that you would help us to, to not allow our hearts to be distracted from the glory of the Christ, our Savior. May we, Father, not be ashamed of the gospel, but rather to look for opportunities to declare the excellencies of Christ to those that we may only have a few moments with in this life. So, Father, I pray that you would use us and change us. But in the process of doing that, Father, would you fill us with the joy not of presence, but the joy of belonging to Christ. And may, Father, you glorify him in our lives as we live them this week. Lord, all of this we ask in the name of our Savior, Jesus.